0: If you could open up in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2, we're going to actually start in the last verse of chapter 1, and then we're going to proceed from there. So, This is really an interesting book. And whenever it comes up, you have to do something with this chapter that we're about to look at. I've probably read more commentaries and listened to more sermons on Jonah than any other book in the Old Testament. And it seems as if preachers and commentators are always split on what to do with this chapter. The the whole second chapter of Jonah is filled with this rich theological Passionate prayer in the midst of of all of chapter two, right in the middle of the book, most of which we're going to cover next week because we're only going to be looking at three verses this morning. But depending on how you see that prayer and depending on how you view Jonah, people generally either see this prayer as this great monumental moment of repentance between Jonah and the Lord, or they see, um, this passage is Jonah just continuing to be the phony that he was in chapter 1. The people that believe that genuine repentance took place usually point to the words that are in the prayer that's recorded and how similar they are to other prayers of repentance that you see throughout the Psalms. They point to the fruit of Jonah's ministry, and they point to the fact that even though he started off going in the wrong direction, he ended in the right direction. Jesus even told a parable that was similar to this. He says, you got two brothers. One says, I will do the will of the Lord, and then he doesn't. And the other one says, I will not, but then he does. And Jesus says, which one did the will of God? So people that believe that this is a genuine repentance point to things like that. The people that say that he was a phony point to his bad attitude in chapter 4 which we'll look at in a couple of weeks to show that this dude really didn't get it. They say that Jonah was never really looking to obey, that it was sort of forced obedience. What are you going to do when you've been swallowed by a fish and literally transported to your mission field and you know just spit out amongst those people. When the boat was sinking, he chose to be thrown overboard, essentially choosing a self-righteous suicide over repentance. And they point to where he just sat and sulked under a tree in chapter 4 and how he seems angry with the character of God and his goodness towards those whom Jonah deemed to be undeserving. I remember my homiletics professor, I'm not saying this to rag on the guy, but my homiletics professor in college Um, he did this five part series on Jonah that was called um, something along uh, the names of the phony prophet with a fishy repentance and it was centered on how much of a phony Jonah was I love that man and it's a clever title chock full of alliteration and all of those Good things, but it misses the point of the book, and I think that it misses God's heart and the gospel on display through this book. Let me just say this before we really dig in, because I'm gonna just, I'm I'm, I'm gonna come out swinging this morning, and I'm really gonna hit hearts hard because this passage hits hearts hard. But let me say this before we dig in this is going to be at the heart of my sermon if you see this as an either or with the propositions that I just laid before you you have way too clean of a view of the upward trajectory of the Christian life and if you really see sanctification as if it's just this like I started here at the cross and here it's just this constant incline with me getting steadily more and more awesome as I go along Um, then you know what you've got a whacked view of sanctification and you've probably never entered into messiness with other Christians And you've probably actually never dealt with the messiness that's going on in your own heart. And it leads to you having a really whacked view of the Christian life. So it seemed to me that it is just so clear that it is not an either And I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that the commentators and preachers that are much more intelligent than I am, in spite of their intelligence, completely missed the point of the book of Jonah. So that's why we're doing three verses, because I'm going to give you the point of the book of Jonah that they missed. Not because I'm smarter, not because I think I'm some intelligentsia, because I have a PhD in screwing up, so I get Jonah. And, And the moment inside the fish... That which it's followed by an either or it's not it's not that it's followed by a both and and as we open up the chapter two we're going to see a man that genuinely turned to god but genuinely still had a stank attitude and was in need of adjustment Throughout this story, and I just want to be really, really, really real with you for a minute. I honestly don't see why this is a tough exegetical point for people to understand. Have you ever met somebody? Focus in. I, I want to. I want to know. I want names. I'm just kidding. Um, have you ever met somebody that's just been shown buckets of grace? like Jonah, leading them to repentance, but later on in their life, they forget the amazing grace that they've been given, and they just end up having a gnarly, sour attitude. You ever meet anyone like that? Someone who claims Christ, but just acts bitter and stank and angry towards God and other people? Holy cow, I have. I mean, I literally come across them on almost a daily basis basis. I'm not talking about you folks. I'm talking about the other church I pastor. Uh, um, Have you ever been the person who ended up being rescued by a miraculous act of grace only to get frustrated with God and others who are in the midst of the same sin that God saved you from? I know that I have more times than I care to admit. The only difference, check this out, this, is, this blew my mind studying this book. The only difference between me and Jonah is that in between Jonah's repentance and his gripey bad attitude later on in life is that God used him as a mouthpiece to save 100,000 people. And that's never happened to me. Maybe it'll happen this morning. Maybe it'll just be like widespread repentance for anybody that doesn't know Jesus that's here in our midst. But that's the only difference. The heart's the same. So why do people rag on Jonah too much? Instead of, instead of trying time, um, spending time trying to read between the lines and find stuff that's not even in the text about the reality of Jonah's repentance that we're going to be looking at or lack thereof, we're going to look at God's goodness in bringing us to repentance causing even the hardest of hearts to cry out for him, the way that he intervenes when a heart is brought low and how God is the only one doing the pursuing and God is is the fountain of infinite grace and God is the one who produces all of the fruit after he does all of the pursuing, after we did all of the screwing up. All of it, the repentance to the wild and amazing fruit was all Jesus, not you." That's a much better story. It's a much better way to tell Jonah than, hey, this guy messed up. God did something. Now let's talk about Jonah messing up some more. I want to talk about Jonah, because the story is not about Jonah. The story is about Jesus. Ultimately, This story is not about Jonah's obedience or disobedience, his repentance, his lack of repentance. Ultimately, the story that bears his name is not even about Jonah. It points to the true and greater Jonah who was cast into the even more raging waters to save his people from an even greater storm and the one who came faithfully and preached a message of deliverance and reconciliation against those who were his true enemies. The message of Jonah is about Jesus. We're about to embark on a story of God's love and God's mercy to the most undeserving of recipients. And how Jonah thought the Ninevites were the most undeserving of recipients of God's grace and mercy. But God caused Jonah. Listen here. This is so cool. What this book is all about is Jonah couldn't be a mouthpiece to tell people that they were undeserving of God's grace, yet they were about to be the recipients of it until Jonah was brought low enough to see how undeserving he was of God's grace and how miraculous it was that he got to be a recipient of it. All that's really happening here is that He's grappling with the fact that the person that's least deserving of God's grace is the person looking back at you in the mirror. is that amazing? When you combed your hair this morning to get ready for church, did you take that in that the person looking back at me is the person least deserving of God's grace? Yet, holy cow, that's why grace is grace, because he's lavished it on me. He spared nothing, and he has just dumped it out in buckets on me because he's in love with me, and he's in love with you. That's what Jonah had to come to grips with in the belly of the fish. It's not there for us to be able to argue about the reality of his true or false repentance. That's God's problem. God looks at his heart. That's not not even your shtick, man. Why are you trying to look at the heart of a dude that was 800 BC? You ain't gonna see it. You're not gonna be able to discern it. So there's a whole lot of pages that have been wasted trying to write about it he had to get to the idea that before he could really get anything else we have to see that we are a missionary people that god has called us to be commissioned to tell the world about this gracious and merciful savior but before we can do that we need to see that you are the person most in need of a gracious and merciful savior that's the battle that took place for Jonah. So we're going to go ahead and dig in to our text. Jonah was at a moment that he couldn't have sunk any lower. Look at one seventeen. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So when I say that he was at a moment that he couldn't have sunk any lower, I mean this literally and I mean it figuratively. The dude was just cast off of a boat and he's sinking into a raging ocean and he had to come to grips with the fact, hey, this probably isn't going to go well. Historically, people that get thrown into the ocean during the midst of a giant tempest do not survive the occasion. And the sailors understood the gravity of this situation. Look, this ain't their first rodeo, man. These were sailors, yet they are shaken by this storm. Imagine what this storm must have been like. If you're a hardened sailor, yet you're to the point where you're just gripped and you're shaken up by what's going on. And they are under the assumption that they're all going to die. That's how much they're bugging about this. Fear is dominating here. And because of their superstitious nature, they thought that throwing a man overboard, they were either assisting in a self-righteous suicide or making a sacrifice to be able to appease an angry pagan god or both like if you've ever seen the great theological masterpiece Madagascar 2 in Madagascar 2 Melman the giraffe plans to hurl himself into the volcano to appease the gods who are angrily withholding water from Alex and, and Marty and King Julian and the rest of those poor folks But instead of being saved by a fish, Melman is saved by a hippo named Gloria who falls deeply in love with this giraffe. But think about it. He could not have sunk any lower. He's one of God's covenant people. He was the prophet through whom God would regularly speak. He was used in great ways and he was respected as a holy man in the land. And because of a root of bitterness, he was willing to forget All of that. He was okay with running as far from God as he could. He was okay for blaming God for even allowing this, even though it's clearly being caused by the condition of his own hard heart. He was completely okay to saying no to God, and that is something that we're going to come back to later. So, not only could Jonah have not sunk any lower, I mean, the dude was actually sinking. There is nothing compared to how he was sinking spiritually. You might be here and be somebody who's sinking spiritually. And if you think I'm talking to you, whoever you are, the Holy Spirit is. If you're that person who's here and you're sinking spiritually, I don't know that. I didn't name you. But if the Holy Spirit is implicating you, allow him to implicate you. And I just want to say, if that's the case, welcome. Welcome this message is for you. God's grace is for you. Just a quick tangent, but can you see the destructive power of bitterness? Jonah was so bitter with God and so discontented with his calling that he thought nothing of hurting himself or hurting others because his bitterness had him in a place of radical self-absorption. I'm just going to throw this out here. But if you're a person who's regularly a bitter person, I'm just going to bet that you're regularly a self-absorbed person. Dig that. If you're somebody who's regularly a bitter person, you live your life with radical self-absorption. That's not from me. That's from the Bible, Hebrews chapter 13. Check it out. If you're somebody who walks around with a bitter countenance, I have a little exercise for you. I want you to do this when you leave here. I'm serious. I have an extra, this, you look for application points. People ask me for application points all the time. Or when I list those things at the end of the sermon that you can apply, they're like, hey, can you, can you give those to me so that I can apply those to my life? Well, here's one that I'm going to give to you that you can apply for free. Walk up to somebody who cares about you and ask them, if I promise not to verbally abuse you or just add you to the list of people that I have dismissed because of my bitterness... Would you tell me if you see me as self-absorbed? Honestly, if you are struggling with consistent bitterness, where there's just always a problem, and whenever a problem arises, it's always like, can you believe what that person did and what this group of people did and what these people did and what the government did and what Obama did and what Trump did and what anybody but me did? It's never you, right? I mean, there's all these people that are just being so stinking offensive. And it's weird, man. You never realize that you're the center of the spoke of those wheels. Like, they're they're wrong, and 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 they're wrong. And it's circling back, but it's like, whoa, man. There's one common denominator between all those people being wrong, and it's the fact that I'm just bitter as all get out. So walk up to somebody who cares about you and ask them, if I promise not to verbally abuse you or just add you to the list of people that I've dismissed, would you tell me if you see me as self-absorbed? If they are really, really not afraid of you, which they probably are, but if they're really, really not afraid of you, the answer's going to be like, <laughs> that's going to be the answer. It's going to be like, Yeah. You are so self-absorbed that I don't even want to answer this question because we both know that you're just going to write me off for being honest. The more you play around with bitterness, the more you sink like Jonah. And that's a fact, Jack. Let me ask you, is there anyone here who feels like they could possibly not sink any lower? Don't raise any hands. I remember a few times going to church with folks with my folks and and the weight of what I had done the night before just leading up to that moment and sitting there with a hangover and feeling like man I could not sink any lower than where I'm at and guess what I did God kept letting the bottom basement of that floor drop lower I remember sitting with cuffs on in the back of a police car wondering what was going to happen and thinking I couldn't sink any lower This has to be the moment that provokes change. But guess what I did? I still sunk lower. I sat with too many pastors to even count. This is one of the saddest things I have to say to you, with tears running down my face because they didn't care about their sin. And they were so hard-hearted as they told me about how they ripped their families and their churches apart through adultery or some other sin. And then they say to you in a moment of clarity, how can I possibly sink any lower? How about you? That fight with your wife where you said things that you always said, these words are off the table. No matter how hard we fight, we're not going to use words like divorce. We're not going to use words like, that are divisive, that are going to be wounding, that are going to be cutting. But you did that debt that keeps accumulating, that you can't believe that this is happening to you. I can't believe that I'm that guy that just has to get another credit card to pay off my other credit card to be able to pay off my other credit card when I can't even remember what I purchased with the first credit card to begin with. Can I possibly sink any lower? Anyone here at that moment of how can I possibly sink any lower, again, welcome. You're in the right place. We're going to see in a few moments that even if that is you, even if that's your reality, that God's amazing grace is for you and he doesn't view you in light of that thing that you view you through. That's how much God's grace is just amazing. Those things where you're like, gosh, how could I ever rebound from this? God's like, are you kidding me? I spoke and a world fell out of my mouth. You don't think that I can help you with your debt? You don't think that I could restore your marriage? You don't think that I could come in and enter into those areas of your fears? I rose again from the grave. I defeated death. So first, no failure would be complete with pointing out the fact that it was Jonah that got himself into this situation. Look, Jonah had nobody to blame but himself on this one. Uh, This was not because poor sailors made a poorly made ship, okay? He couldn't be like, it's really not my sin. It's the nautical prowess of those who sail to Tarshish. They really need to get their fleet together. I should not have signed up for carnival, and I should have spent the extra couple bucks and taken a Royal Caribbean, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't because they took a poor route. He chose the route. And he paid the money. And he paid good money for it too. Which does bring up one more kind of funny little tangent. Often when people want to blame other things for their current circumstances like Jonah did, they choose to blame the circumstances that they often paid good money for. That's nuts. It's like this circumstance really got me twisted as I pay $2,000 for it. In other words, it seemed like a good idea at the time. He consciously thought through this and he consciously took the loot out of his pocket so that he could pay for in full his bad decision. It seems to be that many of the worst decisions that people make end up being pretty expensive, aren't they? I mean, those situations where you're just like, whoa, how did I get myself into this? There's usually a couple zeros behind that. I mean, it's not normally like I went and bought one too many Snickers and that thing was a buck twenty-seven and it just railroaded me. There there, there's usually a few beans behind these poor decisions. I know I'm I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, but you know it would fix this feeling of just lostness in me? A new motorcycle. (laughs) people do that there's probably people here that have done that jonah consciously landed himself in this situation you know that famous bible verse ben franklin 316 that god helps those who help themselves jonah's not helping himself man he's digging the hole deeper by paying good loot to go to Tarshish. I want to reach back into chapter 1 for a moment to highlight what the major sin actually was. Get this. Jonah's major sin was that he said no to God. There's other areas of sin. There's some sub-sins, and um, Andy did a great job hitting on both, the the reality of what the real sin was and those sub-sins in the text. Sometimes, as I've seen teaching on this, it's really easy to focus on the sub-sins because they're spectacular in the book of Jonah. I mean, this story is just so rich, and Jonah really blew it in, like, buckets of ways. So you could focus on any of them, and each of them are pretty relevant and relatable, and you could dig in, but the biggie here is super simple. The sin that is exposed in chapter 1 is that Jonah thought he had the right to say no to God. I want to hit you with this. We do the same thing. We know that God calls us to be involved in meaningful community, but sometimes I would rather just choose a life that's so busy that I'm devoid of fellowship. That's the same thing. It's saying yes to your desire so that you could build a life that consciously says no to God. We know that God calls us not to gossip or backbite, but that person in the church just really irritates me. So let's go have a wicked little conversation in the corner. Those conversations are ugly, by the way. When you're the pastor and you get to step back and look at them and you just see people like, no, can you believe? Can you believe what they said about my ministry? <laughs> it's hideous. It is so so ugly. It's the same thing. You're choosing to say yes. To your desire to gossip and feel fulfilled that, hey, we both have this common hatred that they don't like my ministry. So let's gossip about them. And that's going to make me, and you're saying no to God as you're doing it. The ironic thing about the Great Commission is it's literate the Great Commission, check this out. This is, I, I want every I up here. So stop playing Candy Crush. Stop doing whatever you all do that drains You do something, because you guys drain the internet so much that we can't even cast sermons to, like, orphans and widows, so stop with the Candy Crush, by the way, unless you hate orphans and widows. I've been wanting to say that forever. Turn your phone off. What the heck do you need Wi-Fi for here? Amen? Woo! Yeah! God, that's been wanting to come out for, like, a year can't even preach the gospel because you need to update your Facebook status. Knock it off. But the ironic thing about the Great Commission is that it's literally spelled out way clearer than Jonah's commission. Yet there are Christians that will go their whole life with never telling a non-Christian the good news of Jesus. Or spend one second of their time making disciples. You're saying no to God if that's you. We know that God's called us to be cheerful givers. I've met people that literally tell me they have a pastoral calling on their life and they want to be in ministry and they've never tithed. I will tell you straight up you're not called to ministry. If that's you, man, if like every bucket is my ducket and I spend it on me, you're not called to ministry. You're saying no to God. I could keep going, but I prayed for conviction as I put together this sermon, Not Condemnation. But I'd like you to consider if there's any areas where you are consciously choosing to say no to God. But check this out. Just when he thought he couldn't sink any lower, God was in it. Look at verse 17 again. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Who does it say appointed the fish? God appointed the fish. So all that Jonah brought to the table, again, candy crushed down. All that Jonah brought to the table was disobedience, selfishness, bigotry, prejudice, and a rebellious spirit. And all God brought to the table was salvation anyway in the midst of it. Does that sound familiar to anybody? When you were able to bring absolutely nothing to the table, when you were the ones that got yourself lost in the situation and you couldn't GPS yourself out of it, when you consciously chose to rebel against God rather than do as well, when you were on a trajectory to be cast out into the storm rather than follow God's will, God appointed a Savior who would save us from ourselves and our own rebellion. And like Jonah, the only thing that we brought to the table was the sin that made it necessary. And just like you, can I get an amen to that? Come on. And just like here in Jonah, God appointed a way in the midst of the storm. How comforting is it that when you can't sink any lower, God is in it? Even if you created the situation... Even if you're a hot mess as you sit here today. Even if there's no reason that God should be in the situation. You didn't earn your way of God being in the situation. And you did not provoke a situation where you're like, you know what, I am going to create a soft landing so that God can enter the situation. As Jonah was sinking, God said, I've decided that I have appointed a time that you shall sink no lower. And he appoints a time for you that you shall sink no lower. If you grab the hold of Christ in the midst of that, you know that. You said, I don't want this elevator to keep going down. I'm pushing the stop button, and it's named Jesus. And you cling to the cross. Even if we created the situation that started the sinking to begin with, because that's how good God is. So just when Jonah could do nothing to improve his situation, Jesus Christ showed up. And he was in the form of a fish that swallowed him. So it was probably not the way that Jonah would have thought up. Even if you gave him a million years. I mean, do you really think it even crossed his mind? Do you think he ever thought, if I get cast into this storm, there's just an uber fish waiting for me when I get down there. I'm just, I'm just going to dial my uber button and gloop. You think, you think that that's the way this thing worked out? Even after it happened, do you think that Jonah realized what was happening right away? Do you think he realized that God was saving Jonah from himself at the moment that he was being swallowed? I want to encourage you, if you are here and you are sinking, if you belong to Christ, he's in it with you. He might not be in it the way that you've chosen. But look again at our story. Do you think that Jonah chose the way that God intervened into the story? But God appointed this. Man, that's one of the beauties of being holding to a high sovereign view of God. I wouldn't have written the script this way. But God appointed this. And God might be doing something in your life in a really unorthodox way to shake you. God appointed this. Don't be reformed in your soteriology but then just be totally you-centered in your sanctification and be like, man, I need to appoint this. I need to work. God still is the one who appoints this. I'd encourage you, don't miss it by potentially complaining about something that God might be doing in your life for your good and his glory. The trial that you might be in might just be God's fish swallowing you up to prevent you from further destroying yourself. Get that. The trial that you're in might just be God's fish that was appointed to keep you from further destroying yourself. I've seen enough people that were on a trajectory of deeply in love with Jesus, and trial enters into their life, and they're like, why? Why is this happening? Because he loves you, and he's tired of you faking the funk. And he's trying to grab a hold of you and he's saying, get back to the cross. That's what my fish is for, is to bring you to where you were supposed to be to begin with. But in your sin you wandered. But he loves you so much that he brought you back even though you weren't going to go there on your own. A situation that seems like it's coming out of nowhere might be God redirecting you back to the place that he wanted you to be to begin with. The curveball that's being thrown at you might be God just getting your attention. The thing that's uncomfortable in your life might be God just trying to show you that He wants to be the center of your affections rather than the worldly thing that you're worshiping. Amen? Yeah. And where are all the people that tell me like, oh, I just wanted to shout hallelujah during the service and I'm always like, you should have. Do it! God! God! God is in the midst of the mess that you made. You're sitting in there in the sandbox making messes and here he is coming in and appointing deliverance because he's good and he's merciful. If God thank I can always count on you sister. Thank you. If God shows us anything, it's that something sometimes it takes sinking to release our grips on the things in our life that you would have never released on your own. Amen. So I'm going to start to kind of wind it down. That doesn't mean worship team come up, by the way, because you know I say that three times before I mean it. So whether Jonah truly grasped all of this or not, the next words are where hope intervenes. And Jonah prayed to the Lord in the belly of the fish. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying I called out to the Lord of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol I cried and he heard my voice. Look praying is the most powerful thing that you as a human can do ever. Sometimes I catch myself reaching out to people who are hurting I did it this morning reaching out to Lee West as I was talking to him about taking care of his wife and and you say things like this anybody ever do this I'm praying, but I wish that there was more that I could do. And when I'm right, I catch myself on what a stupid statement that is. I might be able to do other things other than pray, but in my limited power, I can never do more than pray. Get that. You might be able to do things other than pray, but in your limited power, you'll never do anything more than pray. Anything that I do is just that, something that I do. But when we pray you invoke the living God to enter the situation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God enters into and changes reality through prayer? Don't blame Calvinism for a weak prayer life. God enters into reality and changes reality through his people getting on their knees and he says if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and pray i shall come and heal their land Mm. god is sovereign and he uses prayer to accomplish his means both are true It doesn't take away from his sovereignty, and it does not push us any less towards prayer. This is the first right step that Jonah did in the book. He comes to his senses, and he asks God for help. There's no fix-it mode that can help here. Notice that the story changes radically once he prays. Two little words at the beginning. That's why I only wanted to do three verses this morning. His two little words change the whole point of the book. Jonah prayed in 2-1. If you're like me, when you encounter a problem, you know what? Usually I don't ask for hands, but how many, are, when you encounter a problem, you immediately go into fix-it mode? Anybody? Okay, all four of you. Um, there's no fix-it mode that he can go into. He's pressed to pray. Like Corey Ten Boom said, sometimes you don't realize that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. And he didn't have anything else. I mean, he might have had some pre-digested fish in the belly of that fish or some plankton he could have been noshing on. But he had nothing but Jesus up in there. And this is one of the areas that people get testy on in the commentaries depending on where they landed. Was he sincere when he prayed? Why would somebody feel the need to judge that and play the place of God? All I know is that the man prayed, and the next verse says God showed up. I don't know all that was going on in his heart. I don't know how deeply sincere he was. I just know that it says in the word of God, he prayed. And I've been there where I've prayed with deepest sincerity. But I've also been there where I've just offered up foxhole prayers. You ever do that? God, you get me out of this, and I promise promise this. God, forgive me for this time of lust. I'll never lust again. Forgive me for this time of bawling out my kids. I'll never bawl out my kids again. Those are just things that you're just saying that you know you don't mean it in the moment. But it's a prayer. And God still shows up. And I've seen him show up in both. I remember offering those foxhole prayers. Like, God, just please deliver me from the mess that I made. And he did. And it was awesome. How great is our God and then it says that he called out to the Lord in, our, in his distress. Um, sorry, I'm going a little long, but this stuff is just butter. So I'm going I'm to spend a minute. Thank you. If I will. Um, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. I'm just feeling the Spirit. So just give me three more minutes, and I want to preach this. He called out to the Lord in his distress. Look, I just want to pastor you right now from the pulpit call out to the lord in your time of distress cry cry read the psalms read how many times it says i cried i called out to him and he moved you know my favorite part about this passage and why i only did three verses this passage shows that no matter what you're going through you can cry out to the lord right where you're at and what does it say the Lord did it says I cried out to the Lord and he answered me Do you know that this refrain and why I chose to do three verses this refrain is one of the most often repeated refrains in the entire Bible it's all over the Psalms if you read them and you know what I love about it David says these words when he was in the midst of sin that he caused himself he blew it Bathsheba Other sins, and it says in those psalms, I cried out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. David utters these words when he did absolutely nothing wrong. When he was running away from Saul after he was anointed the righteous king of Israel. And you know what he says? I cried out to the Lord from the depths of Sheol and from the pit he answered me. And David, he utters the same words when it's 50-50. When he's running from Absalom, which is a situation because he was a Jerry Springer-like father. And he's like, man, I cried out to the Lord from the depths of Sheol. And guess what he did again? He answered me. You know what that shows me? You don't have to clean yourself up before you can cry out to the Lord. You could cry out to him right now. The Lord doesn't look at you like, you made this mess, you fix it. You made this bed, go lie in it the Lord, the beauty of His grace is even if you created the mess, He's your daddy. And you can cry out to your daddy. And He's a good father. Even if you broke it, He fixes it. I remember hearing this message on conviction. And I had these charges on me in New Hampshire. They were kind of serious charges, and I just figured the best way to deal with this is to never go back to New Hampshire. And I could deal with that because New Hampshire's not all that cool and um so i I was just going to not go back. And I remember hearing this message on conviction, and I was just so cut to the quick that I called up the courthouse in New Hampshire from Chicago. And I said, I'm in Chicago. What's it going to take to extradite me back to New Hampshire? I'm deeply convicted. I want to deal with my crimes. And the lady said, you sound like you got a healthy dose of conviction from the Holy Ghost. (laughs) She said, mail me 146 bucks for court fees, and this will disappear because it sounds like the Holy Spirit is doing more than we would have done anyway. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me. That's what it says in the Psalms. Man, I read in the same thing in Psalm 116, and that was my life verse when I came to Christ. He says, I was in the pit. I cried out from the depths of Sheol. Oh, Lord, I beg you, save my life. And you know what the very next words are? Gracious is the Lord and compassion, and I was brought low, and he saved me. You heard my voice. I love that psalm. That psalm has always been precious to me because I feel like it's my testimony. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me. And if you're here and you need to cry out to the Lord, he's waiting. What are you waiting for? So as we close, let me share a couple application points. Before Jonah could come to grips with the fact that the Lord wanted to save the Ninevites. In spite of the fact that they did nothing worth saving, Jonah had to realize that he was just as wretched as they were and just as in need of saving. Jonah was brought to where he had to do the same thing that was expected of the Ninevites, to cry out to the Lord in the midst of his destruction, I invite you, cry out, take those words to heart, Where it says, I cried out from the depths of Sheol and he heard my voice. Don't be afraid to cry out from the depths of Sheol because it beats staying there, doesn't it? He hears the voice of his children. And whether you brought it upon yourself or you're the victim of something that happened outside yourself. Or if it's something in between or something happened outside yourself and you just handled it like a dope. God's grace and mercy are always for you, and the recipe is the same. It starts with taking your eyes off of the circumstances, fixing them on Jesus Christ, knowing that the need is deep, and crying out to the Lord in our distress, and believing that our Father is good. Let us celebrate that as we partake of communion today. Amen. Jesus Christ, you are so good. We cry out to you. You answer us. We don't deserve it. We did not earn it. Yet here you are, here we are. We come to you stripped down. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to partake.